this is Property Matters, a weekly catch-up on all matters property, supported by Fairview International Property Consultancy and auctionproperty.co.uk. And we're live every Sunday at 10am on YouTube, Facebook, and on our website, propertymatterstv.co.uk. And if you're watching on our website, we'd love you to leave us a quick Google review. That'd be very nice. Just hit on the review button and leave us a short review. Please get involved by adding your comments in the comments section below today. And if you'd like to email us, it's hello at propertymatterstv.co.uk. Property Matters is also a podcast every Monday after the Sunday broadcast, and you'll find it on all of the platforms listed over on the side there. So let's take a look at this week's property news with our property expert, Joe Joshi. Good morning, Joe. Yes, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Well, it's, it's good to see the sun is uh, out there a little bit. Makes, uh, makes it uh, all a little bit more brighter and cheerful, doesn't it, for a Sunday morning, uh, Paul, uh, as we have to get up so early to do this fantastic show that we do. <laughs> so let's go straight into it then with our first story. A YouGov poll has revealed that nearly half of adults in Britain would be in favour of abolishing the leasehold system on home ownership. The survey found 28% of respondents strongly supported the, the proposal, while 19% said that they would somewhat support the move. <clears throat> Some 7% were somewhat opposed and three expressed strong opposition, whilst 43% were unsided. Makes you think that perhaps some of them didn't even know what the leasehold system was, perhaps. Yeah, it's, um, it's an age-old issue here, Paul, with uh, leaseholds and, and ownerships and so forth. But uh, it was devised, obviously, hundreds of years ago uh, for many different reasons. And um, now it's sort of, you know, rears its head again for various, various parts of the uh, leasehold process, leasehold properties, uh, the ownership, um, how that works and um, why it's a good thing and why it's a bad thing. Obviously, uh, our man at the levelling up uh, section is obviously out to do everything he can or to level up. I'm not quite sure what he's levelling up at this precise moment in time, but he's certainly... Uh, where possible, having a go at um, either leaseholds or, or tenants or landlords or anyone else that he thinks that uh, now deserves his attention. Uh, so the leasehold uh, uh, um, scenario here is, um, is it's a two-way thing, Paul. People know freehold. Freehold is always something that uh, we feel is something that we own. Uh, the land it's built on and all that is on it. Uh, the leasehold situation uh, occurs because someone else owns the freehold or there's a multiple occupancies. For example, let's say there's a block of flats of six or ten people in there or, or 100 and in some cases. Then what happens is the, the land is actually built on that block is a freehold and that freeholder may be someone different to those that are now the leaseholder. And that freeholder gives out a historically a 99-year lease or a 125-year lease or in some cases with a peppercorn rent of 999-year leases. Um, and there were re various reasons why these were, were created um, uh, and we can go through those as, as on a one-to-one point basis. But um, now the way things are talking about it is just that the shorter the leases are left, for example, if it's a 99-year lease and it's now dropped down to maybe, I don't know, say below 60, it becomes challenging for refinancing, it becomes challenging for, for selling. Um, and um, of course, those are the reasons why um, it is now come back into the limelight about making sure that everybody either has a share of the freehold um, or I have the chance to have a, a longer lease. 
Yeah, Gove has definitely got it in for leasehold in, in principle. He says that the system is unfair and that in crude terms, if you buy a flat, that should be yours. You shouldn't be on the hook for charges that managing agents and other people can land with you. So he obviously clearly doesn't agree with the system. And I think, you know, the notion that you um, have a leasehold on a, on a house that's built on a piece of land and you're the only person occupying that piece of land, then... Why should that land belong to somebody else when you've bought the house? But I can see the argument, like you said, with like a hundred block of flats um, on one piece of land. Do they have a hundred feet? I mean, how does that work in common hold, for example? So, yes, yeah, so let's, <clears throat> let's pick up the point on the house uh, first. Um, and there was a time when uh, um, perhaps a farm or a, or a, a family trust or somebody would have owned the land that... Um, they then managed to get planning permission on maybe a hundred years ago to uh, issue leases on it. Now, the reason why the leases were originally created were because of uh, what we call crystallization. It meant that they physically didn't sell the freehold and subsequently wouldn't be paying tax on the sale of the freehold, but created a lease so that basically they still owned the freehold and actually sold off a lease aspect. That's how um, it was originally devised and designed uh, to the best of my knowledge, that it just meant that they, let's say you owned uh, a piece of land and you decided to um, get planning permission and sell it. But if you had sold the freehold of that aspect of that land, you would have been liable to pay a capital gains or some tax levy for crystallizing that asset in the first place however you haven't you've kept it and therefore you haven't crystallized it and then there you're not going to pay but what you do do is create a long lease and sell the lease aspect of it so theoretically you haven't sold the freehold now there i agree that obviously if it's a house and it's the only property on it then why not let the person that is owning the lease have the opportunity to buy the freehold um, they're normally only paying a peppercorn rent. A peppercorn rent would be like a penny. It's just a token gesture to show that there is the difference between the freehold and the leasehold. Um, the only problem with leasehold and freehold is that every time somebody wants to do something, they will have to take the freeholder's consent. Now, that also could be relevant to a property that may have a chunk of land with it. It might be that it has a covenant on there to say that they can only have the one property that is built on it. But if they choose to build another property on it later on in life, then the person who owns the freehold will have the right to have some compensation for the fact that they're going to have the privilege of building another property and thus great gaining a profit. So those are the, the sort of the nuts and bolts of why the leasehold freehold existed in, in general, especially where uh, single dwellings were concerned, like a home. When it comes to flats, or a block of flats, or hundreds of flats, then the problem with that is that um, who's going to be responsible? Now, that there it's hard for Mr. Gove to convince anybody and everybody that, you know, this person is uh, liable and this person, you can't really theoretically own a free old hold of a flat in the middle of the air, you know, in, in it's like having a brick in the wall. So you say, oh, that, that particular brick in that wall is my mine. So how do you get to that brick? You've got to get through the system. You've got to get through the common areas. You've got to 
I mean, you're not going to fly into it. It's, it's, there is some sort of commonality that has to happen. So the way that is now being dealt with is primarily that everybody can have the share of the freehold. So there isn't actually a freeholder per se separately, but they might have, so let's say there's 100 frats, they all might have, you know, 10% or 1% share in the company that owns that freehold. So they can almost self-administrate a extension of the lease or or the costs or the um, maintenance costs or the ground rent or whatever they want to do. They always self-maintain that. Um, and then each time that property is sold, the share of that company is sold with that property. So the, the next owner has the same rights as everybody else. That's, that's kind of the way things are going forward. Um, whereas until now, it hasn't been that way. In, 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 um, that's, that's not how it is. Yeah, Gove said last weekend um, that, that his government plans would be able to make it easier for leaseholders of flats to bring their buildings into common ownership to avoid paying ground rents and management fees. It's, it's another popular area <laughs> for the government to try and win favour with people because they've already had a knock at landlords for overcharging tenants and now they're suggesting that these freeholders to try and get some balance in the discussion um, are overcharging the uh, the leaseholders I guess for these management fees and, and we have had stories of where that happens and certainly uh, it's I think it isn't, isn't it a unique system to the UK because common ownership is, is very common in, in Europe for example isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. It was just designed, like I said, originally, it was designed probably to avoid paying tax. That's how it was probably originally set up, but it's become historical and, and it is where it is. Now, when you look at the aspect of um, maintenance and uh, service charges and all those things, you imagine having 100 people in a block. Um, there's always going to be one pool. Not one, but there's probably loads of them, but there's always one that will disagree with that what has been put together. Um, and that one person could create nothing but a havoc um, for the other 99 people that might be in the block. For example, you know, don't want to be participating in the common area for cleaning, don't want to pay for this, don't want to do this, don't like that, don't like this. And before you know it, that area becomes rubbish. Um, and unfortunately, first impressions count. Somebody coming to buy a flat, let's imagine you had a flat in that same block, um, but the whole common area was so terrible because none of you could come to an agreement as to what the charges were going to be. No one did anything. You're the losers because at the end of the day, the next guy who's going to walk through those doors and say, I wouldn't mind living here, is probably going to say, God, I don't want to live there because they haven't got their act together. So there is a minus and a plus. So sometimes it's actually good to have a a separate management company who then take responsibility for the common areas, deal with all those issues and do it in harmony with, with others. Yes, of course, there's a charge. There's always going to be a charge. And I think Gove is kind of wrong with that in, in, in saying, oh, we've got to get rid of this because I think there are some situations everywhere in the country that just wouldn't work. I mean, it just wouldn't happen. I mean, some of these blocks that have been built, you know, the towers in London, for example, it's, it's near impossibility. It makes it even harder for those landlords and other leaseholders, when a person has decided to rent it out um, and doesn't live in the country, who is part of the share of that freehold or is part of that whole block. And the tenant that they put in there is, is a very difficult tenant for the rest of them. Um, and it just goes on and on and on. So there's so many reasons, which I don't think he's actually thought about. It's just easier to open your mouth and say, well, actually, I think 
you know, we should have a reform on that. But uh, a good percentage of people will be very, very cautious in, in how that is done. Yes, it does need some sort of reform. There's no doubt about it. And I think there should be some sort of policing in how that is, is dealt with. But I'm not quite sure that you've got to just abolish the fact that it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, the legal profession agrees with you. You'll be pleased to hear, uh, Joe. They've poured cold water on the prospect of the leasehold system being abolished altogether. Uh, one property expert said the abolition of the leasehold system in its entirety is unlikely. To reform uh, the, the reform to improve the system and its operation going forward is highly likely and very much needed. So the, exactly what you just said there. And, and, and in a nutshell, Joe, what are the biggest problems with it as it stands at the moment? I think the biggest problems is um, the service charges can be excessive, um, especially on some of the recent newer built blocks, perhaps in the last 15, 20 years, where they thought, you know what, we can whack big service charges. That makes it really hard to sell, especially when you think the current um, cost of uh, living the way it is. Um, you have your mortgage going up, you've got all your other costs going out, and then there's a service charge on a, a block. Now, there's no issue to a large extent paying those service charges if the work was being done and you will find that there isn't. So for example, recently you will see that um, uh, we've had these things with um, uh, the, the facades, um, um, the fascias of, of the buildings for the fire risks and so forth from since the, uh, the uh, Glenfield um, Tower uh, having, um, having the fire. And you know, those service charges, those insurances they've collected are not actually being counted. They're not standing up and saying, well, actually, we've collected all this money um, and we, were, we will deal with this. They, they want the government to deal with it. And I think that's what's really brought this whole situation to the government's attention because, you know, people are saying the government's got to cough up to pay for all these things. And really, I've always said that they've collected those insurances and service charges for some time and those people should be the one or the insurance company should be the one that should be you know paying up for all these things so the biggest problems currently today i think are things like that um and having block management by people that are probably not managing them um there's also a case where there's a lot of absentee landlords so in other words someone somewhere has put a security up of that particular building Maybe they have, uh, um, you know, had a misfortunate circumstance where they've now no longer part of that, that, or it's been taken by by a receiver or someone else, and so no one really has the uh, direct contact for who is actually responsible. So collectively, it becomes a bit of a ghetto because nobody really cares, and those are the problems that I think that actually uh, are currently um, stronger issues cost of uh, the ground rent, cost of the service charges, cost of the insurances, and um, nobody actually taking responsibility to deal with, with the problems. Well, we will be able to see uh, fairly shortly when uh, the uh, proposals come to fruition, exactly what happens, and we will keep up with that story, of course, here on Property Matters. Um, one of the things that uh, the government will be pleased to see, although whether they've had anything to do with it, I'm not sure, the North-South house price divide remains considerable, but the gap has started to close. Driven by higher rates of house price growth seen across the north during the pandemic property market boom, as well as growing market sentiment as a result of the government's announcement of the levelling up fund, new research shows from uh, a company called EXP UK. So the company analysed the divide based on the far higher prices found in the south, 
course, uh, against the more affordable costs for property found across the West and East Midlands, the Northwest, Yorkshire and Humberside, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. <clears throat> and the study found that there remains a clear divide with the average house price across the house, South currently 404869. What's more, every region south of the divide is home to an average house price north of 300,000. In contrast, the average house price across the North is currently 209,404, with the West Midlands coming in with the highest average house price of 256,937. Based on these property market parameters, the research by the company shows that the north-south divide in property values remains a notable 93.3%. Surely, Joe, that all, all of the reason for the, the narrowing of the divide is that people are looking for bargains further afield. Not sure there's such a big narrowing there, to be honest with you, Paul. I mean, it's probably, <laughs> probably not even worth mentioning to I mean, the north-south divide really is a north-south divide. And yes, the levelling up, people think that they're actually making some inroads, but really they're not making any inroads at all. Um, the south you know, is by far the most popular. Um, we know that for many a reason, mostly because the bright lights of London or any big city uh, makes it easier, jobs are, are, are more available, travel, communication and so forth has been much better and just generally the South has been uh, always more popular than, than perhaps the North. Not that there's anything wrong with the North, it's just that I think that's what happened. In fact, it's the North that continues to come down. Occasionally, people do tend to sort of go up um, and there are reasons for that partly because there's family connections, partly because sometimes people are going to downsize and they might think, okay, well, uh, um, yeah, I, I moved from the north to the south. I've now done my bit down south. I made some good money on a property. I can actually sell this property, clear my mortgage, and I can go to the north, back to my roots, um, and, um, you know, um, and, and get a, a, a better value, go back to the home area, um, and, um, and live freely. So, you know, that, that that is the reason. I mean, obviously, during the pandemic, you may have remembered that uh, there was a big rush to go towards the north um, or out, uh, out of London, primarily because, you know, this this whole thing of COVID-19 was going to be, you know, the be all and end all. But you know, in, in all honesty, uh, what was COVID-19 to a large extent? You think about what we went through to where we are. Most people were not. It's a bit like the other, other word called Brexit. I mean, it's, you know, these are things that happen in the journey. But Right now, it's about people that where they're comfortable, and I think that um, the north-south divide will make will, will maintain uh, unless, of course, they really do create some, you know, job structures that makes people think, well, actually, I'm better off living in the north on the basis that I've got the job that I want and I can afford to, you know, pay off the mortgage and and work this way. There are so many reasons that. Um, are just beyond our control. They're not, there's nothing you and I or anybody can do about it. It is where the attraction is. Um, and that's what the, the, the divide will continue to do. These figures that are coming in saying, you know, there's, there's 97%. I mean, we're talking nonsense numbers, really, in, in, in what is the, is the difference. And, and part, primarily, that is, I think, down to family structures, jobs, and communication, and younger generations. They want to go to London. Yeah, they certainly do. And actually looking at the figures that we've got on screen at the moment, showing a, a, a chart of figures from 2012, 2020 and 2022. So if you looked at the inflation adjusted north-south divide in 2012, 
it was 79%. And by 2020, it rocketed to 97%. And it's eased back in two years to 93.3. And as you say, I think the race for space as people moving around and trying to find bargains on the coast and maybe up north, um, because they could get more space um, without having to probably fork out a lot more money, um, that's probably helped to spread the load more across the country. But you can see in actual fact, there's a misprint in this particular thing. So the second line should actually read the south, not the north twice, um, as you can see on the screen there. So the change, percentage change for the north is 7.8% and only 5.8% in uh, the south. So the fact that the south is growing slower than the north by 2%, and as you say, it is small margins. But it is quite a shock, isn't it? 79% to 97% in, what, 18 years? No, eight years, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 you know it's it's a subject to talk about, but if you actually look at the look at the the numbers, it's it doesn't make good conversation really, because I mean it would have been more exciting if if the numbers were much wider, uh, as opposed to you know ninety three to ninety seven percent, from ninety seven to ninety three, and two or three percent is not something really that that great. But the idea of having people that are um, you know living in the north and and divide that that divide exists. Uh, it's really down to the fact that I think you know wh wherever your family is and what your roots are and how you how you go for it. But uh, the younger generation, even if you look at the margins of growth, um, you know there might be lesser in value growth in sometimes in London. But there's a huge demand. They know that in the long long term, um, South will probably outperform the North in terms of uh, capital uh, investment gain. On, on their property. So if you bought something at, I don't know, three hundred thousand pounds in in the south, the chances are it was probably going to be worth four hundred thousand pounds. But if you bought the same sort of thing, in you know, in the north, it might only have gone up by another ten, fifteen thousand pounds. So that's that's the that's the driver uh, for people to sort of say, okay, well, that's it's a supply and demand for it's this this bottom is it's supply and demand. The demand is much higher in the south, um, and the supply is limited. So that's what the prices go for. Yeah, the head of the company doing the research, Adam Day, says it remains a tale of two markets across the UK, with the South remaining a dominant force in terms of overall house price pedigree, while the North has enjoyed a stronger performance uh, of late where the house price appreciation is concerned. And also, of course, because of this levelling up fund, there was probably a degree of prospecting by investors because they're thinking to themselves, well, if the government's going to invest in the infrastructure and the IT and so forth for the North, then I might as well get in early and hopefully see some growth on those prices when, when all of this um, infrastructure is in place. Yeah, but that's still not happening to a large extent. I mean, more recently, even though there's been a, a huge surge of people going to the North during the pandemic, um, the value is still back in the south. Uh, even though, while we were doing our program during the pandemic, we know that um, the the north south divide was there. People were, were you know, on the race for space, leaving uh, the big cities, going out towards um, the countryside. You know, cashing up on the properties and, and and buying and getting more space. But when it comes down to the you know everyday living and the reality is that their their whole structure was you know, based where they were in the first place. So they are tempted to be attracted back. And if they're not, their children will be because they think, well, actually, I'd rather go back to, you know, my friends are there, my, my work is there, um, you know, all that social networking is there. And that's what actually sometimes, you know, draws them back to where they started. 
Talk about investing in the North, and um, this is something that we hadn't planned to speak about today, but I, I just reminded myself of a conversation I had at a party recently with someone who said, great tip at the moment is to invest where there's future free ports coming. So, for example, one place that was mentioned was Hull, and another one is Portsmouth. Apparently, they're both becoming uh, free ports, or certainly Hull is, and um, Portsmouth is hoping to, and therefore uh, a smart investor might consider um, bringing an investment into buying property around those sort of areas. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's, a, you know, free ports have been have been sort of mulled around in many ways. Uh, um, I always suggest to people that follow the lines of communication in the terms of uh, like the rail network and look what's happened with um, the Elizabeth line finally got through there. You know, it was because of the Elizabeth line that was going to be put together, the crossrail, and, and that route started to do really well. Now there is obviously talk of the high speed, uh, the HS2. Um, yes, there is discussion. It might stop at, stop at Acton or it might go into central London. But the fact is that wherever the, the communication lines are, the routes are, are going to be where it is. And that's exactly what they're talking about, these free ports. It's about, you know, where, where there's going to be work coming in. And and uh, um, and people maybe want to uh, invest or buy or live in those areas, and depending on the jobs that they do, um, Portsmouth certainly is in the south anyway. So or the southwest, you know, it's it's it'll probably always do, it doesn't do bad, but uh, it, it'll do probably better with a with a, a, a free port. Um, and Hull definitely, I think Hull, you know, was was a, a big city growing, and I think uh, a free port would maybe give more work. Um, for people up there and that's what really the driver is for these free ports it's about creating more jobs creating more em employment and obviously bringing more people back to the north and bringing bring life back into those cities so our final story today joe concerns a government bonanza and maybe this is why liz trust was thinking about uh, tax cutting taxes um residential stamp duty land tax or sdlt to you and i the receipts jumped 69 percent to 10.1 billion pounds in england in the last year according to hmrc home transactions grew 20 percent year on year to 1.2 million in 21-22 in England, of course, the highest figures since 2007 to 8. All regions saw a year-on-year -year rise in residential stamp duty receipts in 2021-22. HMRC's data shows ranging from a 50% rise in London to 3.9 billion to a 117% jump in Northern Ireland to 65 million pounds. Um, well, there's a double-edged sword there. Obviously, they've created a lot of cash to pay back the debts that they've incurred in recent years. But, of course, the rest of us, the that elusive first buy has gone even further in front of us. Yeah, um, I have to say that Liz Truss um, wasn't thinking anything positive at all. Uh, uh, she was pure accident that happened uh, in every possible way that one could think about. And that's why you haven't seen hide or hair of her ever since she parted um, number 10 um, and the revolving doors at that time. So I don't think she's got anything to do with this. But the fact is that, yes, they made some good money uh, during the pandemic. Um, and um, uh, it shows that it is important for that first step to the uh, run of the property ladder where first time buyers or, or anyone that is, you know, moving in as investors, they can have whatever break they can in order to make sure that they pay no or, or reduce stamp duty. 
Um, but in this situation, as you have pointed out, even though they've done, you know, a ho holiday for stamp duty, because of the volume of the transaction and perhaps the sizes of the transaction, um, because the system allows people to move up the scale, and as you go up the scale, that holiday doesn't exist. Um, and so they've made good money out of that. But, you know, uh, every successive government, no matter who they are, blue or, or, or red or yellow, they will all turn around and use building as the, uh, the way out. And that's exactly what happened during the pandemic. It was the only part that was doing well, the building industry um, and and obviously reduction of stamp duty. And I wouldn't be too surprised that it, it wouldn't be something that would come back in again in a short space of time in order to kickstart the the current sort of uh, lull in the marketplace, primarily because of the cost of living that came in simultaneously to the um, increase in the bank um, interest rate. So, you know, um, they, they've they always, historically, in all the years that I've been around in property, they've always used the stamp duty and the interest rate as the yardstick to either reduce, you know, uh, moving or increased moving of property because they know that that is the driver for people to say okay well look you see i've got no stamp duty to pay at the moment it's zero to two hundred and fifty thousand uh, pounds you know that's going to be taken out in 25 um uh, according to according to the figures but you know it's very possible that that will continue and it's also very possible that um they will increase it perhaps again maybe to half a million pound in order to you know, restart the market. They will always use, every government will always use the stamp duty because it is guaranteed free money that is coming in because people in this country, beginning in the UK, everyone wants to ultimately, where possible, have a piece of their own property and, and obviously not want to rent if they can because otherwise they're just lining the pockets of other landlords. Um, so really, it is it is always going to be a yardstick. And yes, they've, they've done well to pay some of those debts back. Um, and, um, you know, Liz Trust created a nice hole. <laughs> so the jump in transactions followed the stamp duty relief, of course, which was launched on the 8th of July 2020 and ran to the end of June 2021. Homes valued between or below 500,000, should I say, paid no stamp duty, rising from the standard 125,000 exemption. Um, from the 1st of July 2021 to the end of September 21, stamp duty was, uh, was due on homes above 250,000. So there's no doubt about it, Coventry Building Society's uh, head of intermediary relations said the numbers, numbers confirm what we already knew, the stamp duty holiday injected life into the market at a time of uncertainty. Uh, the reduced tax bill enabled people to move more freely, which was especially important during the pandemic when a lot of people were suddenly working from home and reassessing what their house needs were. But the one thing I wanted to talk to you about was Kwasi Kwarteng did actually say that he was permanently abolishing stamp duty for properties up to 250,000. And of course, Jeremy Hunt soon reversed that when he got into power. But that was one move that I think would have got a lot of popularity with people because there was a lot of call for stamp duty to be abolished altogether. But we realise that it's such a cash cow for them, they can't possibly do that. So why wouldn't it have been helped? It should have been helpful, surely, to have kept that going so that the first-time buyers had a bit of a chance. Well, like I said, that's, that is uh, still there uh, until 2025. He's reversing it in 2025, to the best of my knowledge. Um, but they will probably sustain that. And I think what they'll do probably is come back with uh, the half a million pound uh, part point where up to half a million pound 
you know, there will be no stamp duty just to kickstart the property market again. And that's what they did in the pandemic. And that's what they, they, that's why they had it at half a million pound. And that's why they've had so much money coming in because if you're moving upscale, you know, so the first half a billion, I mean, even parts of London, half a million is, is standard, you know, a two bedroom flat, one bedroom flat is three, 400,000 pounds. So they're already out of the 250 mark. The 250 mark may exist sort of um, some parts of uh, outside the M25 and then basically uh, towards the north. But in London, um, you know, you are not going to get much for £250,000 or less. Um, so they're all going to be paying stamp duty. And in order to kickstart that, they'll probably need to push that back to half a million pounds. And whilst Jeremy Hunt actually reversed it or said he reversed it, uh, or he will reverse it at a certain time, I think it was more of about, you know, who's in charge situation. I'm here, I'm going to make everything they've done, you know, I'm going to turn it back. But really, I'm sure uh, he needs to rethink what's going to happen there. Because if you look at the numbers that HMRC have had in stamp duty during the pandemic, because of the reduction up to half a million pound, um, perhaps they should take a, another look at that and say, we need to increase it from 250 to half a million pound, or maybe consider it as a regional thing, Paul. It might be that it, that happens in, you know, London properties and, and, and it's a lower rate in, in the North, because why, why wouldn't that be the case? But the reality is they will use the stamp duty as a yardstick to, to um, determine the, the future of the housing market. It's definitely a lot of people in the industry thinking that the government is not just about the level of, of where the stamp duty comes in, for example, but how they could be more creative um, in, in using it and thinking outside the box. So, for example, the suggestion is that they could be more generous with stamp duty for homes that have got energy efficient home improvements, for example. So people who've invested in the property to make it more green um, would get more relief on, on stamp duty, for example, or there could be waivers on stamp duty for downsizers to encourage people who've got this six bedroom house and they're living on their own or just the two of them because the kids have flown the nest, um, but they don't want to move because they don't want to pay the stamp duty to move down absolutely and i recently had a discussion with someone exactly in that position and um you know they've got a property that is now perhaps way more way bigger than what they want to to have it's hard, it's hard to maintain needs quite a lot of work doing to it so you know um and maybe one person they can rent some of the rooms out but the reality is it's the cost of moving um that actually sort of stops them because you know, not only have they got the cost of selling and, and leaving and, and legal costs and, and agency costs, etc., but then they've got a double whammy on the other side when they've got this massive great stamp duty. And that does make people stay where they are. Now, I, I agree they should be creative. And that could be that someone who is downsizing doesn't have to be paying stamp duty on their move. Um, and that encourages them to perhaps vacate a larger property or a property that is sitting on a bigger plot that may be converted or potentially taken down and put into you know flats so, so we can actually produce more living space, um, uh, more properties for people to, to buy or to rent. Um, and that could be quite a good, good thing to do. But um, uh, yeah, they, they do need to definitely think about the creativity of, of how they could use that. And the EPC situation for bringing it to the minimum standard of C um, is being um, sort of talked about pretty much everywhere at this moment in time. And yes, I think that's what will happen as time goes on. Not only we stamp duty will be a consideration, but even lenders may turn around and offer better rates 
for those that are actually um, taking the time and the trouble to get their properties up to a certain standard. And, and because of that, of his efficiency, it means that when they do their calculation in terms of affordability, these are big words this morning, my fault, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, with, with those things in mind, yes, they would probably turn around and say, well, we could actually offer you a better rate because you have bothered to uh, maintain your property. You have brought it into minimum category of C. Um, and so subsequently, you know, we're going to uh, offer you a, a lower rate. So, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's room for improvement in that, definitely. Well, we'll follow that story as well, along with all the others that we've discussed today uh, on Property Matters over coming weeks. And that's all we have time for for this week. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you again next week. Music